I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about incredible people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. Have we got an extraordinary guest for you today? And to be honest, unless this intro runs for the next hour all by itself, I'm going to have to truncate the bio of this remarkable human being. I hope she'll forgive me. Professor Jessica Stern is one of the US's foremost experts on terrorism. She served on President Clinton's National Security Council staff, as well as being an analyst at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Jessica has lectured at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, was the Super Terrorism Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and National Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution Task Force on National Security and Law, a Fellow of the World Economic Forum, a Harvard MacArthur Fellow, and a faculty affiliate of the Belfer Centre for Science and International Affairs. In 2001, Jessica was included among seven thinkers in Time magazine's series Profiling 100 Innovators. Jessica has written prolifically on terrorist groups across religions and ideologies, which includes Terror in the Name of God, Why Religious Militants Kill. She's won a plethora of prestigious awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship for her work on trauma and violence. Today, Jessica is the research professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies. Her current research is focused on evaluating initiatives to reduce recidivism among released violent extremists. But while Jessica's career has indubitably reached stratospheric heights, her success hinges on her atypical post-traumatic symptoms. You see, in October 1973, Jessica, then 15, and her sister Sarah, aged 14, return from their weekly ballet lessons and are doing their homework when a strange man, armed with a gun, enters their stepmother's home in a safe neighbourhood in Massachusetts. Alone in the unlocked house, Jessica and Sarah are brutally raped. The rapist is never caught, and for over 30 years, Jessica denies the pain and the trauma of the assault and focuses on her career instead of the terror. Denial helps us get through the day. Denial helps us live in a world where There are terrible floods as a result of climate change, where there's a terrifying war taking place in Ukraine, where so many people are dying of COVID, from poverty. If we actually experience what's going on in the world every day, we wouldn't be able to function. But it's especially helpful in immediate trauma. After her chilling ordeal as a teen, Jessica doesn't feel fear in normally frightening situations. Sure, an incredible asset when your main focus is on perpetrators of unspeakable violence and terrorism. But Jessica is the first to admit that it's not a strength when it comes to navigating day-to-day life and relationships. In her extraordinary memoir, Denial, a Memoir of Terror, selected by the Washington Post as a best book of the year, Jessica courageously investigates her own unsolved adolescent sexual assault at the hands of a serial rapist, and in doing so, examines the cost of trauma and denial, her own and everyone else's around her. This is Jessica's story. Please note that this incredibly powerful and important episode of Brave Journeys talks graphically about sexual abuse and isn't remotely suitable for little ears. 
If anything you hear during this episode is triggering in any way, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. And please remember, if you're in Australia, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 That's 13 Hi, Jessica. It is such a thrill to have you here. Thank you for having me, Tam. There's no other way to put it. You are a giant in the counterterrorism space. You've consulted to governments. You've lectured at the finest academic institutions. You've authored some of the most seminal books on terrorism. But it's your memoir, Denial, a Memoir of Terror, that compelled me to reach out. And this is saying something for someone who's been obsessed with all things terrorism for most of my life. So an enormous welcome to you. Thank you, Tam. It's an honour to be here with you. Jessica, when you're only three years old and your sister is two, your mother tragically passes away from lymphoma at just 28. What, if any, memories do you have of her? I don't have a lot of memories. I mainly remember her lying in bed with her knees bent for a long time in my childhood. I thought that was a very sophisticated way to lie down. <laughs> my memory is mainly of her in bed because she was very ill toward the end of her life. Your grandfather is a doctor who first starts practicing in the 1920s. And at that time, general physicians did nearly everything themselves. They delivered babies, they set limbs, they did their own x-rays, they examined their own slides. And your grandfather is known as somewhat of a mad scientist and an overprescriber. And he's convinced that your mother's thymus is enlarged because she has frequent colds as a child. So what does that lead him to do? Well, it was not just my grandfather who thought that you could enhance her health by shrinking the thymus if she had a lot of colds. That was a, a common misperception because the thymus does shrink over time, but children have large thymuses, relatively speaking. They thought that when they saw that was a, a child who was sickly, and they noticed the large thymus, they thought that maybe the thymus was the problem. So it was something that some people, some doctors tried to shrink by x-raying. And my grandfather was a zealot and he had an x-ray machine in his home. And so it was very easy for him to x-ray my mother repeatedly. And he did that so much that she got cancer. It's funny. There are doctors who have, have read my book and, and wanted to talk about that. Doctors who knew about that phase of, that very sad phase of medicine. I mean, you know, we, we shudder now hearing about it, but that's how medicine is. It's a constantly evolving profession. And therefore, information that they would have had in the 20s is obviously vastly different to the information that they have now. But the impact or the consequence is, is grave. Yes. I think about that a lot when I think about how I raise my own child, how I am as a professor. I think whatever we think is the best thing to do today, you know, we're pretty sure that it's going to be viewed as barbaric and maybe truly harmful in the future. That's just 
what happens as we evolve, as you say, we hopefully get better over time, especially our understanding of science. Absolutely. You go to live with your grandparents when your mother is very ill and you remain with them for a year after she passes. And even though your father is staying in the house with you, he's really like a ghost and very much absent, so much so that you don't even know that he lives with you. That's right. My father was devastated by the death of his very young wife, and I don't think he handled it very well. He would probably say himself that he didn't handle it very well. And I guess he came home either after we were in bed or there were plenty of times when apparently he didn't come home at all. Did you get a sense, I mean, you didn't see him very much, that's obvious, but did you get a sense of this palpable grief that he was experiencing or he just absented himself in order for you not to necessarily be exposed to it? My father is not very emotionally expressive. I think now I might be able to look at my father and have at least some sense of what he's feeling, but certainly as a child I I wouldn't have been able to. Well, actually, I think children feel, but they don't know how to interpret what they're feeling. Yeah. So I probably noticed something, but I wouldn't have known what it was. Jessica, what prompts you all to move out of your grandparents' home? My dad got married, and he married a a much younger woman. He actually married a young woman who was the older sister of my best friend in nursery school. (laughs) Her mother and my grandmother kind of arranged this for them to get together. And even though your father, no doubt, is looking not only for a wife, but for a maternal substitute for his girls, your relationship with your stepmother, Lisa, is complex. Can you tell me about this impossibly beautiful woman? Yes. Well, the main thing to emphasize is how young she was. She was 20 and she was trying to run away from her mother. Um, She had just graduated from college. I'm sure my father seemed like a very romantic figure. My father's actually quite good looking. He's a refugee from Nazi Germany. He has these two young girls my guess is that she must have found that a very compelling picture and an excellent way to get away from her own family, which her mother was very difficult. But in terms of the complexity of the relationship between you, your sister, and Lisa, what was that dynamic like? Well, they very quickly had their, my father and Lisa very quickly had their own children and often, hopefully not too often, especially now, but as often happens, the children of the previous marriage are second class. And we were definitely second class and we felt inadequate. We thought it was something about us as opposed to something about Lisa not being able to bond with us in the same way she was able to bond with her biological children. Soon after your father and Lisa marry, they urge you and Sarah to call Lisa mother. And I've always wondered, and confession here, this is very close to home, but if people realise the damage that they cause when they insist on children ascribing labels to people that belies the connection. Because to me, that's denial at its best. It's this theory that if you don't acknowledge something 
And in your case, it was losing your beloved mother and having another maternal figure wheeled in stage left pretty quickly, then your grief and your tragic loss simply doesn't exist. You know, I think this was a fairly common approach in the early 60s, but the idea that you could just move on, you could acquire a different mother for children that they wouldn't notice. They would bond with that that person who made the adults feel better. If the children could bond with the new mother, the adults didn't have to feel terrible about what was happening in, for, to these children who lost their mother. You know, there were no pictures of my mother. My father never talked about my mother. He never showed any loss. And my sister and I bore the notion that it was not okay to be afraid, that that was not good for the collective. It was not okay to be sad. To keep the ship afloat, we had to be happy, bonded to this new, very young person, and forget that we had a mother who died. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't even, genuinely, I can't recall how many times in my life I would have said, just because you don't acknowledge it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it's just this thinking that if we just don't call the elephant in the room, then somehow, I don't know if it's by osmosis, but somehow it just does not exist. And it almost inevitably comes out in some twisted way later in life. I mean, I think psychologists would probably urge people not to do what my parents did and other parents did, perhaps your parents did. It's really, really unhealthy. But I don't think that this was deliberately cruel. I think it was what my father and and my stepmother imagined was life preserving. My, My father was preserving his own life and he imagined he was preserving the health of his children. Your father and Lisa divorce six years and two additional children later, and yet you and your sister Sarah stay with her for two more years while your father lives on his own. Why such an unusual setup? My father was the youngest child of a a very old mother. Um, He was an accident. (laughs) He was basically brought up essentially in the Victorian era. He really thought that children needed a female, a mother figure. So that's part of it. I'm sure that's what he told himself. But I think it's also the case that he was looking for a wife and we would get in the way. And it was more convenient to leave us with this young stepmother who had never adopted us and who really went in and out of wanting to be our mother. I mean, some, which made it worse. Some days she would treat us as if we were the most precious children on earth, her beloved children. And then other days we were not her children. And so that made it very, very confusing. And painful, excruciating. Extremely painful. I mean, the longing that I felt and sometimes still feel for a mother was something as a child I felt well, I'm embarrassed, so ashamed that I could feel such intense longing for a mother, almost like this kind of love that it seemed like too much need. I was mortified. I was so embarrassed by that feeling. 
What I can't assimilate completely is why you would feel shame at having that intensity of feeling about longing and yearning for a mother. Because it showed that my mother was dead. It was almost banned in our household. We just didn't talk about it. Why did I feel shame? It just felt kind of unseemly, like it was too much longing and too much need. I should be independent. I should be able to take care of myself. I felt that throughout my childhood and into adulthood. You know, Mother's Day is still a hard day. I don't know if you have Mother's Day in Australia. Of course. It's still a hard day for me. I exchange letters with a young woman that I don't know that well, but I know she lost her mother at an early age. And and we always exchange notes on that day because we know what we're each feeling. Of course. When Lisa remarries and decides to start a new family, you're under the impression that it's your father who insists that you move back with him and his by now third wife, which is very upsetting for you because by this stage, Lisa is ostensibly the only mother that you've ever known and you are attached to her. And you write, and it hurts (laughs) to even read it out, but you write so beautifully and painfully. Our love for Lisa was only intermittently requited, which made us feel the loss of her even more keenly. She had not adopted us, but we had adopted her utterly. What do you come to find out later is the actual truth? Later, I found out that Lisa wanted my sister and me to live with with our father and his new wife. At least that's what he told us. I think it's probably true. It was excruciating. But she... She went back and forth in her love for us indefinitely. I mean, that's just a permanent situation for her. I have to say at age 64, I really feel for her as well. At age 20, she takes on this impossible job. And these children of a mother who was killed by her own father inadvertently how could anybody handle that? But especially how could such a young woman handle that? And she actually married a younger man. So she was already not that much older when she married a younger man. The the age difference, I think, was then awkward. So then you move in with your father and his wife, being the third wife, but it's very painful for you because you feel second class in both Lisa's home and your father's new home. What makes you feel that way? It was really obvious we were second class. Our step-siblings had bedrooms. (laughs) I actually slept uh, in the laundry room initially. I mean, we lived in a beautiful town. I'm not, you know, we weren't hungry. We were very lucky in many ways. But it was still very clear my stepsister had a horse. She rode dressage. That was not our lifestyle. And my dad built us beds. My dad is very handy. And he built us beds. First, there was a bed in the laundry room. Then there was in a room that was sort of an overflow, almost like a basement type room. And then eventually, we did get bedrooms. We didn't get normal beds. So even when we had bedrooms, (laughs) he built our beds. You speak about... In these respective homes, there were eight children in total, and yet you and your sister, Sarah, were the only two that didn't get braces because you didn't have a mother to insist on it. 
my heart broke when I read that, you know, because all the pain of what that loss meant was sort of encapsulated in that sentence, really. Well, the funny thing is that I didn't... I mean, your teeth are beautiful, by the way. I just want to tell you. I had them fixed. (laughs) (laughs) I finally had them fixed only a few years ago. (laughs) They're gorgeous. But I felt it so profoundly that there wasn't someone to look out for you. There wasn't someone to advocate for you. There wasn't someone to be your champion. It sort of fell by the wayside when you lost your mum. Yeah, it was almost like I think of it as physical manifestation of something I experienced. I didn't notice at the time. I mean, of course, I noticed that my step-siblings were getting braces, but it didn't occur to me that my dad didn't think that anything to do with appearance mattered at all. And a mother would think, oh, I don't want my daughter to not have her teeth done. And that was very unusual in the town where we grew up. But my father wouldn't think that way. The dentist may have said, oh, it's not a health issue. And so it's also partly my dad's values. But yes, it, certainly if we had a mother, that wouldn't have happened. It's a tangible example of where exactly. things were missed. Right. You spoke about there not being photos of you or your sister on the fridge. There was you and then there was everyone else. That felt very, yeah. very palpable. Yes. And and all parents need to be sensitive to that. They accidentally have photos of one child and not another. I mean, in our case, it was because we were the the stepchildren, but but it's an issue that could arise for any parent. Absolutely. I'm just thinking I feel so guilt-ridden because I have four children. And when all of them were born, I organized these collages of each of them. By the fourth kid, I was bloody exhausted. (laughs) And to this day, she assumes that photos of me pregnant are photos of me pregnant with her. (laughs) I just go with it because it's easier than saying, I haven't gotten around to doing anything about that. Love you. (laughs) Every Monday night after ballet class, you and your sister Sarah visit Lisa. But on one particular night, the 1st of October 1973, Lisa goes out to dinner with your half-sisters, leaving you and Sarah at home to do, I believe, your homework. What happens that night, Jessica? A man comes into the house. The town we lived in, nobody locked their door. And he had a gun. He, I'm actually, I I have to look at the police record. Even today, my mind goes blank. So when I wrote the book, I was looking at the police record, or I was asking my sister, I was looking at what we wrote down at the time. But even today, I can't keep it clear in my mind exactly what happened. But he had us go to the top floor of the house, had us put on our little sister's clothing. He asked us to brush each other's hair, and ultimately he raped us. Uh, I thought it was so impossible to believe that someone would come in the house and threaten us that at first we thought it was a joke, like a costume or something, that it was a scary costume. But it was very unusual in this very nice town that you would have a stranger rape. And the police didn't believe it. They thought we must have known 
the man who came in with a gun and didn't bother to look that the same man with exactly the same gun had raped two girls in a very similar fashion around the corner just a year or two before. And that this kind of assault with the same gun and with the person not trying to hide his face had happened at quite a few at or near private girls' schools in Massachusetts. You say that during that hour of terror, something got cut out of you. Do you remember what you felt that was? I lost my normal fear reaction. I mean, that, that is a very common response to extreme terror, unfortunately. And it's very dangerous. I mean, it just enhanced my belief that it's better not to feel. And, you know, my, my father really had a lot of trouble with my sister and me having feelings. But after that, it was very clear that it was better not to have feelings, especially fear and, and pain. But the fear, it's almost like a, a biological loss. Something changed chemically or energetically or something in me so that I didn't have for a long time a normal response to fear. You believe that the rapist will kill you, but you don't fight him and that leaves you with crippling shame and you refer to it as being hypnotised into passivity. And it just devastates me beyond words knowing that the victims of rape feel shame for how their bodies react to someone else's evil doing. And you write so hauntingly, that man penetrated me with his shame. Shame, I realise now, is an infectious disease. Shame can be sexually transmitted. Jessica, why do people who've been injured by others turn that shame or humiliation onto themselves? It's probably universal to feel shame after rape. I mean, there's so many things that I felt ashamed of. One of them was that I I did think he was going to kill us and that I didn't have the capacity to fight him. And it was like I was in an altered state, as if I were on some kind of drugs. I mean, I guess I was on drugs that are produced by the body. You think about how maybe if you're drowning, at first you fight. And then at some point, maybe you stop fighting. Maybe fighting is too hard and maybe it's just easier to ease into death. I think that is what was happening, that I was almost not fighting because I, I was going to be killed. And in the book, at the end of the book, I say that the gun, it wasn't a real gun, <laughs> But after the book was published, quite a few of the victims sought me out. It was a real gun. He always used the same gun, and he was convicted of one of the rapes, and it was a real gun. Wow. But I didn't know that till after the book was published. Because there was a perception that it was a cap gun, wasn't it? Yeah, I, at the end. At the end. You absolutely thought that your life was in mortal danger. There's no question about that. Right. We were entranced by death. Death was in that room. 
And then when we thought we found out it wasn't a real gun, there's yet another reason to feel ashamed. But in fact, it was a real gun. Even so, that that sense of giving in to death, there's a such a feeling of shame. If you set aside the fact that it's affected your ability, if I can say that, to feel fear in a normal way, normal in inverted commas, people are made very differently. We're very complex. If I was put in a situation of terror, I can promise you I would be paralysed. I have seen it happen. So some people have a lot of agency in the moment of terror. Some people can fight and some people freeze. That's the way that it manifests differently for different people. So the fact that you, under this absolute pall of overwhelming terror, where you felt your life was hanging in the balance apart from the atrocities he was doing to you, it's totally understandable why you would freeze in that moment. We'd like to think that we would have agency and we would be able to fight someone off. But you were 15 years old. You're 15 years old. You're a little girl. Yeah, I I think it's really hard to predict how we're going to react in a situation like that. The one thing I was able to do was protect my little sister. And I would never have predicted that I would be able to do that. And I think about this in in regard to Evaldi, the, the terrible shooting at the school where the police did not break down that door. And it's hard to explain why they didn't without thinking that they're just scared to death. And I think that they weren't trained to think, you know what, if if you're going to be the first one breaking down a door in a school shooting, you may very well get killed and you're going to be afraid. That's your job. Your job is to protect children. But we don't help people, even people who are, we pay to protect us to deal with fear and what fear can do and, and, and fear can immobilize us. Even, even soldiers, police officers, we do train soldiers to deal with it, but I was not a soldier. I was not trained. I reacted in absolute terror and I was immobilized. You say though that when you're in this state of being hypnotized by passivity, there was something that pulls you out of that trance and that is your sister. Is that where you found some additional strength you didn't know you had? I mean, I'm using words that I'm very circumspect about using because you're you're an inordinately strong lady. It's not about your strength per se, but what was it about your sister's well-being that pulled you out of this state? It wasn't strength. I didn't have a brain. (laughs) My brain was not functioning. I wasn't making decisions. It was an animal-like reaction to somebody that I I had such a strong feeling for because of the background that you've just gone over, that we had lost our mother. It was my sister and me against the world. It was just my body acting on its own, basically. During the attack, Lisa's out of the house. Your father's away in Norway. Who do you turn to immediately after the rape? Who's there for you? There's a babysitter. 
And we called the babysitter. We were living with my dad and just visiting Lisa one evening. And at my dad's house, there's a babysitter. And we asked her to come get us. And she did not believe us. We said, we've just been raped at gunpoint. Can you come get us? And she did not believe us. She didn't know us that well. It was just impossible to believe that such a thing would happen in this little town. I would imagine that that babysitter, who's probably, I don't know, 70-something now, she probably still feels badly about it. No doubt. But the corollary of that is, yes, it didn't happen in your town. Well, that certainly was the perception. But if two young girls ring someone and say that we have been raped, you would imagine, even if they had a modicum of doubt, she'd still get in the car and go and get you. Yeah. It was just another abandonment at a pretty critical time. Yes, it was, it was a very bad decision on her part. Jessica, why don't you call the police? I was afraid to call the police. The first thing that came into my mind is if we call the police, he will turn into a truly hardened criminal. I, I mean, it was completely crazy what I was thinking, that it was almost like I felt sorry for him which was absurd, but that was the feeling I had. And also, I think I was afraid that we'd get more hurt. I think that might be the real issue. Um, It's hard to get to the real feeling because I don't remember. I was basically lying to myself from that moment until at least 20, 30 years. I just got in the habit of denying my own feelings So I think that my real feeling was terror, that he would somehow find a way to punish us for calling the police. But something that's really fascinating is that you do say in the book that you did feel he was a victim and that prison wouldn't reform him, ultimately it would make him a monster, and then instead of just raping young girls, he would ultimately kill them as opposed to just leaving them half dead, which just, you know, puts an electrical shock through you when you read that. What is so fascinating to me, if that was your instinctive feeling in the moment, again, we're talking about a 15-year-old girl here. Right. Why do you presume that your rapist is a broken man even before you know a thing about him or you have investigated the circumstances of your rape because you don't do that for another three-plus decades, and certainly decades before you acquire your expertise about violent individuals and terrorists. It's like on some cellular level you understood that this is a person who's probably had evil perpetrated against him and that the ramifications of him going to jail would mean that he would turn into an even more abusive monster. Yeah. I think you just answered your own question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there was a lot of thinking happening. I was the animal victim. He was the animal perpetrator victim. And that's what was happening. There was a chemical signaling going on. How does your father come to learn about the horrors that befall his daughter's? He gets a call from the pediatrician that his two daughters were just raped at gunpoint. But he doesn't immediately return home from Europe. No. 
No, it's something that understandably pains you way into adulthood, and yet it's something that you keep forgetting. Can you explain that to me? It's really hard for me to understand how a parent wouldn't get on the, the next plane, wouldn't try to hire a helicopter. You know, to me, I, I think of it almost almost like a wolf, like a wolf knows his or her children are, are harmed. The wolf will want to protect them. But something didn't work in that way in my father. I think it's that that his own trauma broke his capacity to feel in a normal way. But of course, I was the child (laughs) and my sister was an even younger child and he just didn't come home right away. He, He said he was coming home a few days later anyway, so he just decided not to try to change his flights. But you and I are both shaking our heads. Again, podcasting is not a visual medium, but we're shaking our heads because we are both parents. And in our parental brain, this is an inconceivable act of neglect. It is completely inconceivable. Yes, it is. With no mother and an absent father, who nurses you back to life after this horrifying ordeal? The person who was most helpful was Lisa. She understood this was a life-changing event, I think. And I'm guessing that what was happening is that at some level, my father probably felt guilty that he didn't come home. And especially my stepmother probably felt guilty, perhaps as a way to protect himself. My father very quickly decided that my sister and I were over this. And he even told the police that we were over it. In, in the book, I say exactly when that happened. At this point, I cannot remember. I think from my recollection, it's a few short months mm-hmm. because you haven't talked about it. So by virtue right. of the fact that you haven't talked about it, it's forgotten and you're okay. Right, exactly, yeah. And he wanted to move on. That's my, my dad's philosophy of life. When something bad happens, you move on and don't look back and... It was much easier for him, I'm sure, to think that we we were over it. I realize now that it wasn't the rape is terrible, terrible, life-changing experience, truly. But it was the the idea that, that we were about to be killed and that this went on for an hour that I think really changed my body chemistry more than anything and my sister's. Well, it's compounded terror on terror on terror on terror. Yeah, yeah. Going back to your dad, I I get a sense of him as a person through your writing, and we both have fathers of similar ages and similar backgrounds. Do you think it's denial or is it because he has an intolerance or an aversion almost to victimhood? Or is it perhaps both? Oh, my God. That's such a good question. You know, there's something I really admire about my dad's refusal to be a victim. It's something I picked up from him, and I'm grateful for that. He refused to take reparations from Nazi Germany for two reasons. One was that he didn't want to be thinking of himself as a victim. He 
ended up working for MIT's defense laboratory, and he felt that was a better, more exciting, more life than he would have had in rural Germany. So he he saw the silver lining in being forced out of his home uh, as a refugee. But also, he admitted that whatever the reparations were, they could never be big enough. So it was both. It was both, I don't want to be a victim, and you can't possibly repay me for what you took away from me. He had both those feelings. But, you know, that survivalist mentality is so common, as is the victim mentality. So for those who've been through unconscionable trauma, such as the Holocaust, and survived it, there was a group of people that wanted to leave that behind and never spoke about it ever again. And I think your father might fit in that camp more readily. Definitely. And then there were others who were perpetual victims ad infinitum. Like that's just... That's how they saw the world. That was how they approached the world immediately thereafter and forevermore. So it's very interesting because you get a very strong sense that your father just has no tolerance or like there's almost an allergic reaction to this concept of victimhood. And so as long as somebody can, as you say, park it in the past, not talk about it, then we'll leave it there and we'll just keep pushing forward. We'll just keep moving on. Definitely. You say that had your sister not been raped too on that horrendous night, and if there'd been no police report to confirm it, you may have doubted that the rape had occurred at all. Tell me about that. I still can't remember details. I can't get my brain to go there. It's almost like my brain turns into jelly. I can't take that in. I can't remember Absolutely. I I would doubt myself. I mean, it it was very hard for me to look at the police record and especially to look at what my sister and I wrote down, the recording of our voices. I I never could deal with that. But I would never have been able to write that book if I didn't have the documents. When there is that kind of trauma, it's, I suppose, protective in some ways. But over the long term, it's not helpful. It's better to know. There has been so many people that I have interviewed who have tragically experienced PTSD because of horrendous trauma. That memory lapse or that amnesia is very protective. And it's often when there's an integration between the event and their memory catching up, when the psyche can actually integrate those two things, it's a very dangerous time in that person's life because it can be too much. It can be just too overwhelming. And when you think about what the brain is capable of doing to protect, it's uncanny. It's extraordinary that the brain can disassociate from the terror so that you can actually survive the experience. But as you say, being in that state long-term has a very deleterious impact on your ability to actually function in, in real life. Professionally, it was a superpower for you. So can you talk to me about what's the altered state that you fall into when fear or terror is assumed to be the more common response? Well, I don't do this anymore, (laughs) and it's been quite damaging. (laughs) I can't do the kind of work I used to do, but I used to do incredibly stupid, dangerous work going and interviewing terrorists in the field. And instead of noticing the fear that I clearly my body was experiencing, 
I experienced it as curiosity. And I was able to sit with very violent men and go to places that, you know, where there were a whole bunch of men with Kalashnikovs outside. I, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan interviewing people who were Al-Qaeda when they were in Afghanistan and members of Pakistani jihadi groups when they were in Pakistan. This was before 9-11. And I was writing about how dangerous they were but it was almost like I wasn't reading my own work because I was still going to talk to them. And that's what I was able to do. And it was, I didn't get killed. And so people look at what I did as courage, but Daniel Pearl did it, the Wall Street Journal reporter, and he did get killed. And people saw what he did as stupid. <laughs> we did the same thing. <laughs> Well, that's why you had such an affinity for him. You were actually pretty obsessed about trying to get him released because you felt you were him. Yeah. You identified yourself as being a Jewish woman in some of these absolutely terrifying environs. And, you know, it's really interesting because I get a sense that on some frequency you actually do experience terror. Oh, yeah. But your calmness or your measured approach is your kind of default in these situations. And so it's really interesting because I too was obsessed with the Daniel Pearl story. And shortly oh. thereafter, I was working on a film on the Iraqi insurgency and my boss wanted me to go to Iraq. And as a producer of the film, it was incumbent upon me to go to Iraq. Unlike you, I feel terror very viscerally. And what was worse was that I don't know if I thought my life was that important at that juncture, but my mother, because Jewish guilt is magnificent, said, <laughs> I will die if you go there. <laughs> you know, there was no equivocation. It's like, I will die if you go there. And I had this terror, genuinely, of being a light-eyed light hair I could change, but light-eyed Jewish woman pleading for my life in an orange jumpsuit. I mean, that's exactly what I foresaw if I went. And yet you went into the belly of the beast. There was no country you didn't go to that would have been on every single terrorist list and danger list in the world because you were, for whatever reason, able to suspend that terror. I definitely was in an altered state when I did this when I was in a room with, with the terrorist and it made me very observant. So I, I was experiencing fear, the fear, but I metabolized it in a strange way, I guess is maybe the way to put it. The other thing is because you didn't betray it, because it was so embedded in you, mm -hmm. these people spoke to you with incredible candor. If you had been hyperbolic or emo overly emotional or very frightened, I'm sure you wouldn't have gotten very far with them at all. But your calmness is what gave them space to be able to share with you. It's unbelievable. That's true. But the truth is that once I got therapy, which I very clearly needed, I started to feel really embarrassed. Like, Anyone with any psychological sophistication would look at what I did and think, oh, my God, that woman is Meshuggana. She is <laughs> she desperately needed therapy. Like, my career was almost, through my career, through what I did professionally, I was divulging how much I needed therapy. 
Well, it didn't stop every single Ivy League university for wanting you to be on their team. So uh, clearly they didn't think that you needed therapy. They were very happy with the work that you did. But, you know, it's funny because when I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking that your attraction to the field of global terrorism doesn't strike me as a coincidence at all. You not either, I'm sure. But you're fascinated by the secret motivations of violent men. You write so portentously. There was a reason why I was drawn to spying on violent men. There was a reason why I was so good at it. I had done it my whole life as a way to tame them and to tame my own terror, the terror I didn't feel. Can we unpack that a little bit? Because that's extraordinary writing, but it's it's got so much in it. It's so dense. There were men in my life that scared me. There was my grandfather who scared me. There was my father who scared me. And then there were really, truly scary people, <laughs> not just people I felt afraid of, but people who were dangerous. And I just became compelled to try to understand through these terrorists that I was studying, like I was going to get to the bottom of, of my own unfelt fear. And, you know, we've talked about how I you're right, I experienced fear. It was just, I wasn't recognizing it. It didn't present um, the way it, it, it does, well, for me now. You know, I spent a lot of money having a lot of therapy, and now I feel a lot. And now I've completely buggered up my career. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I'm joking. Why is shame an important risk factor for savagery and humiliation a risk factor for terrorism? When I was interviewing these terrorists, the word humiliation came up all the time. It's a very, very clear experience, even across ideologies, actually. Terrorists, I think, are often searching for some kind of dignity because they feel their their dignity was taken away, their sense of purpose. And anybody who talked to them would see that. You know, when I first spoke about humiliation as a risk factor for terrorism, people rolled their eyes. But now I think it's more commonly understood. I don't, I don't think there's anything shocking about that statement. N- not at all. And, you know, you have an inordinate and brilliant curiosity And I'm a very curious person as well. And I know that people often poo-poo this notion of why would we want to understand a terrorist? Why would we want to understand the underbelly of society? I had an incredible boss and mentor who was a seminal filmmaker in the United Kingdom, Roger Grave, who passed away this year. And he did a film on pedophiles and everyone was up in arms He said, how the hell do you think you're going to understand pedophilia if we don't talk to these people, if we don't understand why they have these recidivist inclinations? We actually have to understand it. Otherwise, we've got nothing and we can't help anybody and we can't fix anything unless we really, really have an insight into this. And most people who commit atrocious deeds are people who have had atrocious deeds visited upon them. That's what the data suggests. People don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to rape or I'm going to be a terrorist. It just doesn't seem to work that way. Something horrific has happened in their experience. Would you agree with that from your findings? Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. I'm, I'm now 
working on rehabilitation of Terrace, I think it's hard to get to that place, that rehabilitation, without understanding for for the person himself and and for us to understand what led them down that road. Jessica, you'd always assumed that your, let's call it an idiosyncratic response to danger, is but a personality quirk. You had no idea at the time that calm in the face of danger and fear of innocuous sounds and movements and smells are well-studied after effects of trauma. You thought that that was how you were made, which is exactly how I felt until very recently about anxiety. Because it was bedded down so young for me, I always presumed anxiety was me and not something that I acquired. I couldn't see any distinction between me and anxiety. And it was only two years ago that it registered that this is just not how everyone in the world operates. So whilst no two victims of trauma will have precisely the same symptoms, there are common manifestations or presentations, irrespective of whether we're talking about a soldier returning from battle or a sexual assault survivor. What are some of these common presentations when it comes to PTSD? So it's very common to experience hypervigilance sometimes, yeah, uh, which is responding to certain sounds will be either alarming or irritating. It's really common, for example, not to be able to bear fireworks. I had that even though I didn't hear gunshots. Another is going into dissociative states. So... Mm-hmm. One of the experiences I had, and I I didn't know that it was, I thought it was just me. I had no idea that other people experienced it. Sometimes going into a state where I was very, very sleepy, I couldn't focus, I was very prone to getting lost. And both of these states, dissociation and hypervigilance, are very common for people who have PTSD, whatever the reason. Mm-hmm. Jessica, what have been the gains from seeking professional help with your PTSD and what have been what you refer to as the grave losses? Well, the gain is I learned how to love. (laughs) That's a pretty significant gain. Yes, it is. I learned to experience my feelings, which is there are pros and cons to that, if I'm honest. Sometimes I would love to go back to having less feeling. (laughs) But I experience awe, I experience deep gratitude, I experience deep love, I experience fear. And the significant downside is that I cannot do the kind of work I used to do. I can't go into a place where people have guns. (laughs) I just wouldn't, I don't think I would physically be able to get myself to do that now. Understandably. But it is interesting that, as as we spoke about earlier, that your superpower professionally was costing you personally. And once you were able to, let's say, heal from the trauma, it impeded your ability to function at that incredible level of exposure to danger. Yes. I mean, I, I see this. I'm, I'm, I'm friends with someone who had been in the Special Forces who is now in Ukraine. Right. And 
I think that he never processed, never treated his own PTSD, and he's able to use his capacity to dissociate. He's certainly able to use his hypervigilance, which is almost like extra IQ points. Mm-hmm. He's able to use that, to, mm-hmm. and he feels he's really helping people, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain he is helping people. I don't have that. I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to Ukraine. I don't have that. I did have that once. Yeah. Why is denial so seductive? And I'm not just talking about the individual who endures unimaginable suffering. Denial helps us get through the day. Denial helps us live in a world where there are terrible floods as a result of climate change, where there's a terrifying war taking place in Ukraine, where so many people are dying of COVID from poverty. If we actually experience what's going on in the world every day, we wouldn't be able to function. But it's especially helpful in immediate trauma. It's helpful in the immediate term to the victim and to bystanders who want an excuse for not helping. But it, the way we live today, where we're aware or can't certainly can make ourselves aware of absolutely horrifying things happening all over the world, inside our own cities, inside our own towns, across the world every day, we have to have a certain amount of denial. Be- because it comes into our homes. This terrible news, this scary news comes into our homes on an hourly basis. So clearly it serves some purpose. And I've heard psychologists say that it's not something that you want to necessarily tamper with. If there's a person who has incredible defense mechanisms and is living in a state of denial, it might be actually quite dangerous to try and unravel that, because that's oftentimes what's keeping that person afloat. What is the cost of colluding in denial, particularly for the victims? A victim of extreme trauma is going to be in denial. And when people around her are also in denial, it's very hard for her to come out of denial. Denial is protective in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. But as I hinted at, my personal life did not go (laughs) very well until I came out of denial. But everybody around me was in denial. And so they helped keep me in that state. Yeah. And also I would imagine that if you are constantly bombarded with other people who are denying what's been your experience, that colluding really in your betrayal, because you lose your bearings and you stop thinking that what you saw is real and you doubt yourself. I think you made a reference to it sort of corroding your integrity, but it it must. Yes, I I definitely lost faith in my own perceptions. Yeah. Well, that's a huge price to pay. It is. That, That really would do your head in. Yes, it is a huge price to pay. By the time your case is reopened in approximately 2006, you find out that your rapist has died by suicide. How does this news affect you? And I ask it because it seems very important to you that if you can't meet him, at least you understand him. What answers were you seeking some 33 years later? 
I wanted to understand why, why he did what he did to me. And in fact, at least 44 others. And I thought maybe I could get him to tell me why. He probably himself didn't really know why, but I wanted to just look him in the eye and ask him. Yeah. And when you say that staggering, horrific figure of 44 additional victims, that there is the price of community denial because had there been any vigilance on the part of police, had they believed you that there was a stranger that came and threatened your life and had raped you, there would have been an investigation and that may have spared other children. So that gives you a really tangible sense of the result of denial on mass. Yes, absolutely. And there's a price paid by everyone who's suffering because of our denial. In my case, the denial of the community, yes, it was very, very dangerous, and it led to many more rapes than there had to be. Jessica, something that makes your writing even more potent is that you don't spoon-feed the reader. You lead them to a conclusion, and you certainly make inferences, but you don't provide a definitive answer. So you strongly allude to your grandfather's less than venerable character. We've spoken about the mad scientist, a man who's brazenly unfaithful to your grandmother, a gift she seems to reciprocate in kind. But what is terribly distressing is your inference that he molests you as a little girl. Yes. I mean, you're asking me this as if it was deliberate. I really didn't know. I presented the evidence but I certainly don't remember. And I do allow the reader to draw her own conclusion, but it isn't because that's me being an artist. It's because I didn't know. So I I just tell the reader what I do know. Well, you find a letter that your mother writes a year prior to her death in which she describes a very disturbing scene where your grandparents come to visit and your grandfather gets you ready for bed. Do you remember what's in that letter, Jessica? I do. And here again, I feel so much shame. It just shows how trauma really does cause shame. I asked my grandfather to touch me because it felt good. I mean, I was acting the way a a sexually abused child will act. Absolutely. And if it was 2022, your home would have been inundated with the equivalent of the Department of Human Services or Child Protection or whatever it would have been, because that kind of sexualized speaking would have been every red flag that we've been told to look out for. Right. But the way that your mother processes it. So what we're talking about in the early 60s was a very, very different milieu. Right. Right. She says something like, you know, you weren't even three years old at the time and your mother sort of uh, relegates it to being, you know, the words of a real little sex pot, she says. But again, had that been said in any school across any developed country, there's not a question that that would have been investigated. Right. Even today, members of my family aren't willing to see it that way. (laughs) It's easier to be in denial. And frankly, it's easier for me to be in denial. Yeah. One of the most poignant parts of your memoir is the reckoning you have with your father, who we've already uh, described as being a German Jewish Holocaust survivor. 
and you characterize it as the most dangerous and difficult interview of your life, and yet your curiosity compels and propels you, what is the clarity that you seek? I wanted my father to apologize. I wanted him to apologize for not having rushed home. I also wanted to understand why he didn't rush home. I wanted to understand, did he feel fear? And I did come to understand some of that. Um, he refused to apologize, but that's that's okay. <laughs> I accept that. In fact, he he had a really hard time remembering what he did. Right. And I came to understand that he also had periods of dissociation and hypervigilance. He recognized that. And that was amazing that he was able to share that with me. It became clear that I wasn't alone in this puzzling symptoms. I didn't understand they were symptoms when I started investigating but I came to understand that they're very common symptoms of PTSD. My father now is very old. He's 94. And he's told me that he has a lot of images coming into his mind, that he lives in a, a kind of dreamy state some of the time. And one day he told me that the pictures in his mind were of Nazis. And those of us whose parents escaped from Nazis or escaped from any kind of extreme trauma, unfortunately, we, we have to expect that to come back later in our, our parents' lives. And, and that is what's happening for him some of the time. Well, a very confronting moment is when your father accuses you of wanting to see yourself as a Holocaust survivor once removed. What does he exactly mean by this? And do you remember how you respond? What he means is he doesn't want to be a victim and he thinks that I do want to be a victim or a victim once removed and he right. strongly disrespects that. That's part of why it's interesting to me that my father is at this very late stage of his life. I think he's actually really experiencing fear of the Nazis very, very late in, in life. He told me that he wanted to go and get his sword. He actually had acquired a sword from a gun shop, a real sword, which I took away from him. <laughs> but just the idea that that would be his impulse is so shocking. But it does show that he is really feeling that fear now. Yes. Your father's very hurt by your portrayal of him in your memoir. Are you more afraid of your father's rage or his pain? I'm much more afraid of his pain. He was annoyed when he thought I didn't get something right or I didn't get it the way he would like me to get it. But by the end of the memoir, he was actually okay with how he was portrayed. And some people read the memoir and really don't like my dad. They want to protect me. Uh, but some people read the memoir and love my father and want to go mountain climbing with him. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I loved you and I wanted to protect you, but I felt a huge affinity for your father as well. He had well, clearly also experienced 
horrific trauma that he also didn't seem to be able to process, including what seemed to be the rape of his own mother at the hands of the Nazis in the next room. It wasn't something that he could even really assimilate. Again, you led us to that being the likely story. And your father's response when you actually put it to him was, well, she had washerwoman knees, no one could possibly think of her as a sexual object. Again, probably more denial. Absolutely. I mean, how he viewed her as a child, he saw her as having washerwoman knees, whatever that is. She was a, a very old mother, as am I. But As am I. We are in the <laughs> same club. <laughs> yes. Of course, a, a child cannot imagine that anyone would see his mother as a, a sex object, especially an older mother. But that was such a ridiculous defense that the Nazis would never rape her because, because of those knees. A, and B, for anyone who understands anything about rape, it's about control, it's about violence, it's about overpowering someone, having dominion over someone. But his brain didn't seem to be able to compute that that's what had happened to his mum. And right. so he had to find a rationalisation to justify that. Right. He, of course, thought that I was being hysterical that because I was asking him about it. I think it's very likely that his mother was raped by the Nazis. Yeah. You write so movingly, I will no longer comply with denial. The costs are too high. I am not going to bear this burden alone. Jessica, if you had to quantify it, what do you think has been the actual cost of denial for you? I would say that I was in a dream state for a significant fraction of my life. I wasn't awake. And there's a lot that I missed, a lot of relationships that could have been much better if I had been awake if I had been more capable of feeling. Well, you're certainly awake now and you are just a pleasure and a joy to behold. I have to confess it was a little daunting in the lead up to having this conversation with you today because I am in awe of your body of work. I knew I'd be in the presence of an intellectual giant, but it's your humanity, your courage, your willingness to share and the invaluable support that you now offer other survivors living with PTSD that has put me at infinite ease. What a profound honour it was to chat to you today. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me on Brave Journeys. Thank you for having me, Tam. It was really a wonderful experience to be able to talk to you. It was wonderful to have you join us today. The brave journey of my next guest is simply extraordinary, and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Brave Journeys was created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg and Ursula Ferguson. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. And if you love the show, please don't forget to tell your friends and family about it, rate it, and leave a review. That's what keeps us on air. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.